The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Hey, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And yesterday, July 17th, was the 30-year anniversary of Bruiser Brody's murder in Puerto Rico. It's been 30 years since Jose Gonzalez allegedly stabbed Brody in the locker room shower before that night's event. Brody died of his wounds, and Jose was acquitted of murder charges in 1989. So much controversy uh, surrounding Brody's murder. And so today, uh, one of my favorite guests, Dave Meltzer, returns uh, after doing a podcast about himself for the first time. He's now returning to do what he does best, to share details he remembers from covering and speaking to people about Brody's death at the time and in the 30 years since it happened. We'll talk about why emergency crews took so long to respond and actually get Brody to the hospital. We'll talk about some of the wrestlers who were there at the time, Tony Atlas, Dutch Mantel, why they didn't testify at the trial, and how Jose was able to get away with murdering Bruiser Brody. We're going to get into the Puerto Rican wrestling scene and, of course, talk about Brody's career. He was huge in Japan and Puerto Rico, and Vince McMahon Sr. is the one who gave him his name when Vince brought him in to wrestle Bruno San Martino. Lots of stories about the life and death of Bruiser Brody. But before we join uh, my bud Dave Meltzer on the line, let me just say thanks to everyone who came out to rock with Fozzie last weekend at the Rock USA Festival uh, and the Rock Fest in Kadat, Wisconsin, and Oshkosh. Peoria was great. Uh, the Apollo Theater in Belvedere, four awesome shows. Thank you so much. It was a great warm-up. We played a couple new songs, and uh, we are getting ready to head over to Europe at the end of the month and doing more shows in the States with the Judas Rising Tour, which will have Adelita's way uh stone broken and the stir joining us fozzyrock.com has all the ticket information and is the place to buy tickets to fozzy's uh vip meet and greets as well we do a mini concert for you take pictures sign stuff so come hang out with us before the show at one of the best vip meet and greets in the business nine countries we are doing um over the next few weeks including hungary uh, the Czech Republic, we've never played there before. Uh, Slovenia, never played there before. Lots of great concerts and lots of great shows coming up. So go to FozzyRock.com for all information for all the shows coming up uh, over the next uh, uh, few months. And uh, we are going to be going around the world. So FozzyRock.com for all information. All right, let's get to Dave Meltzer and the story of Bruiser Brody 30 years later right here on Talk is Jericho. Okay, so here we are, um, July 17th, uh, 2018, was the uh, 30-year anniversary of the murder of Bruiser Brody. And I have uh, one of my favorite and frequent guests here, Dave Meltzer. Um, as we've done in the past with Brian Pillman and Chris Benoit and the Montreal Screwjob, I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk about Bruiser Brody. And just to, to jump in, prior to the Benoit, you know, uh, tragedy and the uh, screw job, was this one of the biggest stories that you'd ever had in the business that you've ever covered? Yeah. I mean, because he was like an enormous star, and then it was, you know, a murder in, a, in, in the bathroom of a dressing room. So um, he has a really unique story. Yeah, I, it would be, it wasn't, you know, like, the newsletter itself at that point, you know, in 1988, was nothing compared to what it would have been, you know, even, you know, five years later. So it's not, you know, it's not really the same thing. Mm -hmm. Wrestling coverage was different. You know, like with the Benoit thing, that was, you know, front page news. And, you know, you were on shows. We were on shows for, for probably six weeks after, you know, the news was just hammering and hammering. And with the Brody thing, 
Um, you know, as far as like major U.S. news, you know, not really that much. I mean, like the sporting news had a small story. I think Entertainment Tonight did a feature about two weeks later, maybe, or, or a week later. But for the most part, you know, it was, it was not, you know, it wasn't really something covered on a big de- as a big deal outside of Texas. Well, I mean, and that's the interesting thing. Like you said, I mean, the business was so much more shut down and private in those days that, I mean, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that might have thought it was all just one big storyline work. Um, I, I think there would have been some. I should say real quick, because I actually just like had been studying this thing last night. And mm-hmm. um, in Japan, um, the description to me was it was like um, when John Lennon was shot because he was so big in Japan. But in the United States, you know, in Japan, as you know, the media, you know, the daily sports and all that, you know, they, they covered wrestling huge, especially in the 80s and the 70s when, when he was on top. But in the United States, you know, you didn't really have daily newspaper coverage of, of wrestling. Right. You know? And so, 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 so it's, it's completely different. But, yeah, I think that there was some question at the time, you know, it's like, oh, is this some elaborate storyline? Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the thing about Brody, too, is, you know, and where do you even start to talk about this storyline? But he was such a huge star, maybe the biggest star that no one really knew in America as far as like, like, for example, for myself, like as a wrestling fan, as a WWE fanatic and an AWA fanatic, I might have seen him once or twice in the AWA when I was 12 or 13. But by the time the national expansion happened, it was almost like if you weren't in WWE, or even in, to a certain extent, uh, NWA, you didn't exist. But we didn't get NWA in Canada, so I didn't really know much about Brody at all because he wasn't in the WWF, you know? Right. Yeah, he had good AWA runs right after the WWF's expansion. When Vern, you know, after Vern lost um, Hulk Hogan, one of the first guys he tried to get was Brody, and that was like oil and water. I mean, it was a really bad mix. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vern and Brody, even though they tried twice, it, it was, you know, it, it fell apart both times because they're just too very stubborn guys that wanted to do what they wanted to do and didn't want to do what the other person wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because he, he was like, on a worldwide basis, he was, or, or international basis, I would say, if you went, went like, you know, places like Puerto Rico, Japan, obviously, you know, he was one of the biggest stars that there was. I mean, right at the top tier. But in the United States, there were cities, you know, like uh, where he'd worked, on a regional basis, like St. Louis or in Texas, where he was a giant, giant star. But as far as like that national media thing, you know, not being in WWF, he never went to WWF after 1970. He was there in 76, 77, but that was long before the expansion. So yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of wrestling fans might have sort of known the name, but they weren't really, you know, a lot wouldn't have been familiar with him, no. Do you think... Um and I actually have an answer that I might be able to give you there. Was there ever any inroads from him to go to WWF? Was he too oh, yeah. much of a wild card? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he, he was always, I think that was always like the long-term plan. I think that the whole thing from him was, you know, he, he tried to keep himself um, protected, so to speak, you know, where he would always, he would never lose on television and things like that. So ultimately, when he rec- went with Hulk Hogan, it would be like these two giants who nobody had seen lose, you know, so that was his goal, and he was getting pretty close to it, he was 42 years old, but it was always like, WWF is, a, you know, is the big payoff at the end, because mm. in the end, when I go to WWF, the end result is I'm losing to a leg drop to Hulk Hogan, and he was well aware of that, and he was going to do that, mm. um, but it was, it was like, you know, prolong this, and, you know, he had the Japan thing anyway, you know, and he, and he was doing really well in Japan, and he, I'm sure, like, the leaving of Japan to go to WWF for a run, you know, and I, and I think the run would have been temporary. I think once he lost to Hogan, it wasn't like he was going to be one of those lifers who ended up in the mid-card. He was going to probably at that point leave WWF and go right back to Japan because, hmm. you know, he probably could have made more money there. So I think that would have been his, you know, destiny. I, I always thought that um, in the 90s, you know, he probably would have gotten a real big deal from WCW because they, you know, gave big deals to people. I think he would have had a run through... Um, ECW for sure because Heyman knew him and and he, you know he was perfect for ECW. Oh yeah, yeah. So I would expect that he would probably at one point end up in ECW in the when ECW started getting popular and then W and it might have been WWF at that point too. But WWF or WCW would have at that point gone. Hey, we need to get this guy and he probably would have had a, a good run 
a good money run in the late 90s, and that probably would have been about the end of his career, because by then, when he'd have been early 50s, you know, I don't know how much longer he was going to be able to go after that. But it's so interesting, like, it's one thing for me at, like, 47, and, and people saying, oh, Jericho at 47, and, you know, he's doing so great, and he's, he's, he's one of the biggest years of his career, but... If you look at Brody at 42 and had he lasted, lived until 93, which would have been, you know, a, a, a WCW or WWE run, that's 47. Back in those days, you didn't really get, I mean, a lot of guys didn't get really, really big time and make big money until they were in their 40s. Yeah, we used to think that, like, you really kicked in at 35 because you'd been in long enough, you knew what you were doing, you were, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you'd been, you know, I think Brody... He always said that he thought that as long as his body stayed relatively good, you know, and he trained very hard for a big guy, mm-hmm. and he didn't look too old facially, but his, you know, the thing with him, because his gimmick was never being good looking, it was being ugly, yeah. that the face getting older, as long as it doesn't look too old, because, you know, he, I remember him saying about how, like, the Sheik, who, who was a different style than him, but, you know, was the same type of blood and guts guy. I mean, the Sheik went on until he, he was in his 60s and still drew because um, he had a certain pattern match. And he, you know, I think that Brody, you know, in your early 40s, you do start thinking about how much longer can I do this? Um, what do I do next? And he was certainly thinking about transitioning out and getting the WWF run. But I think that he would have had his fingers in it, you know, like maybe like you or maybe even more than you in the sense of, you know, working you know, maybe 50 dates a year or whatever it is, you know, working a schedule but not the, the, the crazy schedule at that stage and doing other things in life at the same time. But I, I'm sure he would have gone till he was 50, and then after that it's just a matter of, you know, how your body holds up. You know, and, and, and you mentioned, like, you know, the, the, the kind of the barbarian gimmick and the wild man gimmick, but it seems like he was a very, very smart guy because what you just described is is actually way more than what i was thinking because he kind of had done all of his worldwide uh making the name for himself and making the big money from, from all japan etc so when he did go to wwe i'm i'm almost wondering you know you mentioned he wouldn't have been a guy to go to the mid card and i know vince wasn't giving out guarantees back then but you know vince would have loved him if they could have gotten along because again you're talking about two guys who wanted to do things a certain way that's true you that's know, true so you don't know but if, you know Brody, here's the thing. Brody, first and foremost, was about the money. If he was making more money with WWF, um, and he and, and the thing is, Vince would have respected him because number one, he was a stand-up guy, and you know how how Vince is with guys that are difficult. It's almost like it's that challenge thing. Yep. You know, and I think he wouldn't want he wouldn't want to lose him anyway because of my other thought is if Brody got on that TV, Brody was really good at getting himself over. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was excellent at it. He was one of the best I've ever seen at it. And at that point, when you're over at that level, um, does Vince really want you to be a free agent and perhaps going to the other side, and, and which, which he would have done in a heartbeat? So, yeah, would Vince, and, and again, maybe he would have, you know, like, like just as an example of a guy, um, you know, like, you know, the, the old 80s thing was, you know, you come in, they build you up, you get your run with Hogan, then you go down. But some guys, like, say, Roddy Piper, they really didn't go down much, and they stayed pretty high for a long time, and, and you know, perhaps... You know, perhaps he would have. Perhaps you know, Vince does have an age thing too. Perhaps Vince would have. You don't. I, That's I don't true. Know what you know? It, yeah, it's 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 one of those what ifs. Um, but he would have been in WWF at one point, and probably within I'm going to guess two years, maybe a year from from when he died, because um, he was super hot in Japan, and I think that um, I, he wasn't looking at leaving Japan just yet, but it was absolutely on his radar that. You know, he wanted to go in with Hogan and be that big opponent for Hogan. Um, you know, not, not a normal opponent. He wanted to time it to where it was, you know, whether it's you're talking about a WrestleMania or what, but it was to be a, you know, not the, the guy of the three months, but like the big one, like the Randy Savage. I mean, that was his goal. Yeah, the Randy Savage with the, with the size of a match like an Andre the Giant or even the Warrior, somebody that people believed could beat the crap out of Hogan. You right, know? yeah, because Brody was really good at, at, and he was legit, and he was good at projecting it. He was even better at projecting it than he was. I mean, right. the people in Japan, when they, you know, they thought this guy was like one of the toughest guys in the world because that's, that was his style, and he worked the style a certain way, and he was really, you know, he was big and well-conditioned and, 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 and very incredibly athletic for a guy that size, especially in that era. I talked to Vince when I watched that documentary that uh, we had discussed um, that, that just came out. I'm not sure if it was on High Spots or wherever it was. The Brody, that was an excellent documentary. Amazing yeah. documentary. And it's worth checking out. But I asked Vince, I said, you know, did, would you think of Brody or would you have ever brought him in? He said, absolutely. 
He said, uh, he said, I always liked him. As a matter of fact, my dad named him. That's which right. I'm sure you know. And yeah. we'll talk about that story in a second. But he also said, and I love this one, he said, I would have had a come to Vince speech with him first to kind of set the ground rules. But absolutely, I would have had him come in to, to, to face, Cone, uh, face uh, Hogan. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, yeah. it was an, like if you were a fan who watched everything in the world back in that era, the Hogan Brody would have been like a dream match just underneath Hogan Andre. I mean, yes. And, and above Savage, because he was a much bigger star on the outside than Savage ever was until he got to WWF. How did Vince's dad name, uh, name Brody? So Brody was working in Florida. Um, under his real name, Frank Goodish, Frank the Hammer Goodish, and he was doing real well there. And I think Kowalski was there at the same time, Killer Kowalski. And I think Killer Kowalski recommended him, whether it was to, um, I think it was to Vince Sr., I don't think it was to Bruno directly, and just goes, look, there's this guy, he's 6'5", he's, you know, 320 pounds. He's the perfect opponent for Bruno. This is exactly what you like, and he's a great athlete. So they brought him in, and Vince named him Bruiser Frank Brody, because he liked the you know, he liked that alliterative thing, Hulk Hogan, Bubble Brazil. You know, those are the kind of names that Vince's father liked. So he just came up with Bruiser Brody. That's like a perfect WWE type name because they always liked having the B and the B, the Hulk Hogan and the Bruiser Brody and that sort of a thing. So it fits. Right, right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tell me about a little bit about uh, Brody's reputation as, as, a, as a worker, because there was always talk about how he didn't want to do jobs and that sort of a thing. And, and also, too, you mentioned how legit he was. Was he uh, still working all the time? Did he have a little bit of a, of a shoot side to him? Um, how, how, explain that some of that. I don't think he had a shoot side. But, I mean, there were, there were a few incidences over the years where he wanted to make a dramatic thing, and he kind of went into business for himself, for sure. I mean, um, it wasn't like it was a regular thing or anything, but he was unpredictable. There was like a time when he was in all Japan, and, and um, he had made the deal to jump to New Japan. So this is, uh, I think, 85, 86. And it was a huge money deal at the time. I mean, it was, um, I actually looked up the number, but it was, it was um, you know, like 12, I think it was a three-year deal. I think it, was, it was 14, 16, and 18,000, you know, for the three years per week. Mm-hmm. You know, which in, in the 80s, I mean, that was just gigantic money for wrestlers. No huge. making that except for, you know, Hogan or so. So, so his last match in, in all Japan, nobody knew this. So he's in the ring, and he basically was like, the Road Warriors, it was the Road Warriors had just come in, and the Road Warriors were like the new young monsters. And I think that he was going like, Baba is paying these guys 10000 a week, and he's paying me 10000 a week. I've been here for eight years. Um, I think that they may be, may be getting my spot. And so he starts talking to Inoki. Inoki obviously wants him, you know, one of Baba's top guys, and those guys were at war. So offered him that great deal. So on his last night with Baba, he basically... You know, in the match, he was in there with, uh, it was a tag match with him and Killer Brooks against Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu, who were actually both Olympic wrestlers for Japan. And Brody just, you know, he didn't sell for them, and he, you know, he, it, 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 I don't know, I don't want to say it was a fight, but it was a very uncooperative situation where Brody made himself look really good on his last night in. And, um, you know, Brooks lost like it was planned, but Brody just, you know, basically kicked the shit out of Choshu and Yatsu every time he was in the ring with them. And then he jumped to the other side, you know, right afterwards with the last memory of, like, God, the last time we saw Brody on TV two weeks ago, he beat the shit out of two of Baba's top guys, you know, and now he's, now he's in New Japan. Okay, right, right, right. So, so that was kind of his strategy then? Yeah, yeah well, in, in, in that, you know, every situation, that, that was his, you know, that was his, yeah, I mean, look out for himself first. I mean, a lot of guys who worked with him in Japan, you know, you have two schools of thoughts, and, uh, and I'll just give you, like, the Terry Funk school who worked with Brody a lot, a lot, a lot. He thought Brody was, like, the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, Brody, he, he didn't sell much for him, but he would, you know, he would sell for him. You know, he'd give him the comeback and everything like that, but he would dominate the match. But the matches were superheated, and Terry Funk just thought he was the greatest. Nick Bockwinkle 
just thought it was like going into combat and it was silly and the guy wouldn't go back and forth with you and he just would like throw up his hands and you know he Bockwinkel always told me that he greatly respected Brody as a worker and thought that he was you know incredibly talented but that you know he didn't he didn't like working with him at all and he thought that he was uh, too stubborn and you know Bockwinkel had ways to make the match better and Brody would you know, he, I don't think Brody listened to him as much as he probably should have, I would mm, say. Mm. So, like, they definitely had issues. I, I remember, like, you know, he would talk about working with Brody and Hanson in tag matches in Japan, and it was just like, you know, it wasn't enjoyable to him at all, that type of a style. Whereas, like, for the Funks, you know, they loved it because, and they knew Brody from, from college and everything like that, and they just accepted Brody for what Brody was and made the best of it, I guess. They just loved the funks love more of the brawling wild style, whereas Bachwinkle was more of a technical guy. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, and Brody wasn't going to sit there and do technical moves. It's, you know, Brody was all action. I mean, that's the one thing he was big and well conditioned, and him and Hanson both they were like all action. They never stopped, and that's what really what got them over. And the, the toughness thing, where you couldn't sell too much, and, and I mean, a guy that size probably shouldn't have anyway. But you couldn't sell too much. But but I will say Brody and Hanson could take that mentality to a great degree where I could see that, you know, the idea is, is like, man, I, a lot of guys would work with them and not necessarily they wouldn't look good themselves, even though the match itself would get over. And you could go like they're really selfish and they're really big and strong, so there's not really a lot we're going to be able to do with them. So, you know, you like I said, they, but they, they themselves were over and they were, themselves were big draws, and obviously Baba loved them because he kept them on top and, Pushed them like crazy and never, you know, Bob and you know, pretty much never wanted to beat them, and didn't want any. And the other thing is that a lot of people don't realize is the nature of the business then in Japan. It's like Brody and Hanson, and like Andre, like Hulk Hogan. These guys were big celebrities in Japan, and when they worked in the United States, it it got covered in the Japanese wrestling magazines. It got covered in the um, Japanese newspapers if it's a big show in a major city. You know, and they were making their big money in Japan. The promoters in Japan did not want in the newspaper that Stan Hansen was pinned by Bruno San Martino um, in whatever. So Hansen wouldn't lose. Hansen wouldn't lose when he went to WWF when he had the big run with Backlund. You know, his the the the, the, the ground rules were is like I'm not going to lose. Now he can beat me in a cage match by walking out of the cage, and that's how they blew off the feud in every city. Hmm. But he's not going to pin me because. Inoki doesn't want me to, to get pinned. And that was, you knew the ground rules. And with, with Brody, it was the same thing. It's like when he would go someplace, you know, he just, he wasn't going to lose by pinfall um, because Baba wouldn't have, you know, how mad Baba would have been is, is a question, but he, Baba wasn't paying him $10,000 a week to have it in his newspaper that Carlos Colon pinned Bruiser Brody in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So you had to come up with finishes that Brody would accept and that, you know, I mean, that, that was just the deal. And would promoters respect that and not try and push the envelope and, and, and get him to lose? Um, that's a big question. You know, it depended on the promoter. If it was a promoter who liked him, like Fritz von Erich, it was. I mean, I don't remember him really ever having issues with Fritz. Um, with Vern, constantly, constantly, hmm. it was like you know, you knew the ground rules going in, and then it's like, yeah, but you know, you wrestled Jerry Blackwell, you know, X number of times. We have to do the blow off. He's the baby face. He needs to win. And that's when they would have their falling out, you know, because, you know, Vern always looked at it that way. And that's why Vern had the same falling out with Stan Hansen. Which, you know, from a promoter standpoint, that's fine, but you know what you're going to get when you bring these guys in. You, know, you, you, you knew the ground rules bringing them in. I mean, that's the thing when, um, like with Puerto Rico, which we'll, I'm sure we're going to get to. Right. But with, with Puerto Rico, I mean, I remember when, you know, when the whole thing went down and everything, because there was always that talk that he was murdered over, over doing a job. And, and I just remember that, you know, Right when it happened, it's like, look, we know the ground rules. He's been coming here for six years. We know that he's not going to do a clean pinfall job because that's just that's just the understanding when he comes in. And you know, in those days, it was okay. You know, if you drew money every time out, you know, you, you figured out ways out of that. Do you? Uh, who were some of his big rivals uh, for, throughout his career? Um, you know, Fritz in Texas for sure. Mm -hmm. um, obviously in Japan, the Funks and Jumbo Saruta and Tenru. Abdul the Butcher was probably his, his most famous rival. Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico, they, you know, they, were, they did really big. You know, the biggest business in the history of Puerto Rico was Carlos Colon and, and Abdul the Butcher. When Abdul the Butcher went babyface against Brody and Hanson, they did several stadium shows that did 20,000, 25,000, up to 30,000 people. They were the, that was the biggest run that company ever had. 
And that's why he was there so often, because he was so over, based on, you know, his ability to draw. You know, Bruno, you know, when they, in that, you know, he had the big run with Bruno. Um, what year was that, early 80s? No, the Bruno run would have been um, 76, because it would have been right after, right oh. after Stan Hansen, the Stan Hansen run. That's when Bruiser Frank Brody came in and was born. And he had a series of matches with, uh, with San Martino. Um, you know, all the heels that were in... Texas, whether it was like uh, Gino Hernandez, Mark Lewin, you know, Abdullah, of course, um, Black Jack Mulligan, you know, he went through, you know, all of those type of guys. When you're talking about, let's say, uh, Bruno, and you mentioned Backlund as well, how would those guys work with him? Because when I think of Brody, it's always kind of like this heavy, intense, brawling style, which, I mean, Bruno was a brawler, but he's a little bit more of a powerhouse guy um, that's not really running through the stands fighting somebody. What were those matches like? I don't remember... You know, he may have been like like when when Backlund was champion, Brody never wrestled him. Okay. So, um, and I don't remember them. I don't think they ever wrestled in Japan either because they were in different. When Backlund was big in Japan, that's when Brody was with all Japan. With Bruno, I saw um, I've seen a couple of those matches. I think I seen two, and um, you know they were just like a typical Brody match. They did the brawling and they went all over the place. Okay. Um, the ones now that's in Japan. The ones in the United States, I saw a tape of one of the Garden matches. And the thing is, it's like Brody was really, really big then. Then he was like, you know, he was probably 320, because that's when he was a big power lifter. So he worked a slower style. You know, like when he was at his best, he was probably closer to 280 mm-hmm. and, and leaner and would do the drop kicks and everything. And this was, it was, it was more of like that big opponent for Bruno type of match. So I would say like those, the match that I saw with Bruno and Brody was closer to a Bruno match. The one later in Japan when, when he was lighter and it was the end of Bruno's career was, was more like a Brody match. It's so cool to talk about this time, because, I mean, it was 30 years ago, but it might as well have been 100 as far as how the business has changed, you know? It's such a different business. I mean, I was just this morning talking to Terry Funk, and it's such a completely different business in, in every way. I mean, you know, like the business he grew up on was, you know, talking people in the stands, next week's card, next week's live gate, you know, gimmicks to keep the people coming back. And now... Just get that product on television and, and rake in money like, like you, you know, like unimaginable money right, right now. I mean, that the, the business is generating. I mean, it's like, you know, you you were around at the, at the end of that era that we're talking about, and you're still around now that we're in this era. And it's just like, you know, I mean, when you started in the business, and and like the money that's around in the business now. I mean, and 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 just the the, the what you've been able to springboard from the business. Mm-hmm. I mean. It kind of, if you look back, doesn't it kind of like blow your mind that like this wrestling that you watched, and it was popular then, but it was just different, was able to springboard you to, you know, the financial stuff, to have a name. I mean, like a name, not just in wrestling, but a name outside of wrestling. Well, the thing to me, too, and, and I really have been thinking about this, and you'll appreciate this, Dave, and it's kind of revealing a few of my secrets, but I really was watching a lot of that Brody stuff. Uh, when you showed me that documentary, I believe it was you that turned me on to it. I was like, this is so archaic because nobody does this, but it still could be so relevant. If there's somebody that comes in that's a total psycho that everyone believes is crazy, but he's not like, I, I don't know. I'm sure Brody was in the territories a lot. But to me, in my mind, I kind of had, 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 had put him in like an Andre the Giant level. Like you would bring him in for shows. Kind of what Vince does with Brock. Like Brock is kind of the, a new age version well, of Brody. Yeah. Right. And that's what I wanted to do with New Japan was to be kind of the Brock Lesnar via Bruiser Brody in Japan. How can I do this? I wanted to be crazier, a little bit stiff. I gained some weight to be blockier because I know they really kind of respect that sort of thing. And I just took that inspiration from from kind of a Bruiser Brody prototype wow. who people believe was batshit crazy. And I, th- I thought like, man... If you could only make those people believe it again, you might have something. And in Japan, obviously, they're not gullible, but it's a little bit more serious there. And you can get them to believe that you're a little bit crazy, you know? It's interesting you said that because the Naito match, I mean, it was funny when when I watched, because when I was watching the Naito match with my friends, I was thinking that, like, like, this is like a Bruiser Brody match in Japan. And I didn't know that that's where your inspiration was. But I mean, there was so much of like of like the thing, especially in the first couple of minutes. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the exact moves he would do, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that they weren't breaking tables because they just didn't break tables then. But I mean, just the the brawling style and the pacing and things like that. It's like this is like a Brody match, and 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 the thing was, I mean, it, it completely worked. 
And the other good thing for you is it's, a, it's an added new dimension. And then it was also not what the people thought they were going to get, I think, in that match. Well, and, and that was all those my mindsets, you know, and, and also with using the inspiration of, of, of a Brody and a Hanson, you know, what could we do in this day and age? And the funny thing is this, and here's another thing you'll appreciate. Back in those days, a guy like Tenru, who's a huge man, would be the perfect foil for Brody, who's also huge. Okay, what if I take, I'm not huge, you know, by Brody's standards, but what if I'm just as crazy and nowadays guys are smaller so a Naito could be a modern-day Tenru, because if you go through that, that New Japan roster, there's not a lot. I mean, Okada's big, but he's built like a swimmer. He's yeah. taller, but most of the guys are my size. Yeah. So now I can be a believable psycho brawler, you know, a strong-style guy with the guys that are the same size as me or a little bit smaller. So all of that came from the Bruiser, like, kind of like what would Bruiser Brody do in this situation? Wow, wow. You know what's interesting is, is there's also the thing about the psycho thing, it's like, because Terry Funk was a psycho guy yes. who wasn't necessarily huge. Right. But the one that I think of immediately again is the Sheik, who was not a big guy at all, but his aura was such yeah. that he was a dangerous guy because his matches always had all the blood and everything like that. And so it's like, you know, Brody was certainly, and, and Hanson both were both very much beneficial by being as big as they were, you know, um, and towering over. But like you said, Jumbo Saruta, Jumbo Saruta was like 6'4". And, and probably 270 to 280. So, you know, he wasn't that much smaller than Brody, whereas, like, like, the, like I said, like the size difference, like you with a Naito, it's not that much different than, than a Bruiser Brody with a Jumbo Saruta. Right. You know, because um, it's just, yeah, everybody, everyone's smaller, and it's, it's just a different style. Yeah, and like I said, just, just to kind of live in that time, time and just to kind of watch some of that stuff, it was real beneficial to me uh, to see that and get some ideas. Um, going back to some of the famous Brody stories, there's one that I want to talk about that I'd heard about, but I, I actually seen that documentary of the, the cage match with Luger. Um, oh God, I got, I, I, this story is like really funny because no, almost nobody knows the backstory and I've told it and it's like, you know, how, I, I, I know sometimes like there's a story and you tell the story and then the old story just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I actually know because I was in touch with everything going on that week. So here's the situation. It's, it's actually more complicated than, than people. People just think Brody went in the ring. He was uncooperative to Luger. Luger climbed out of the cage. He got scared. He climbed out of the cage. And that, that is what happened. Right. But what, it was Luger's last week in Florida. And, I mean, there's, there's just some funny ironies there. It's Luger's last week in Florida, and Brody is just coming in. And, um, you know, they wanted Brody to go over really strong over Luger since Luger was leaving to go to the Carolinas. So I think Brody and Luger, if I remember this right, it was not the day of the match, but the day before the day of the match. They went out to breakfast, and Luger said something to him about, like, um, you know, uh, I'm going, I'm going to get $500,000 a year with Crockett, I'm leaving next, you know, after our series of matches, and I can't put you over. And, you know, which is funny, because that was Brody's gimmick, right? I can't put you over because I'm going to the national promotion, I can't put you over on these house shows. Right. So essentially, Brody was told, like, you know, you're supposed to get over on him, so Matsuda went to Brody and just goes, um, he basically said, teach that guy respect right now. And, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was the, you know, people think that Brody went into business for himself on that one. That was a Matsuda call, and Matsuda was the guy who was running the territory at the time. And he, I don't think he told him to go shoot on him or don't sell for him, but he did tell him to take him apart. And so Brody's mentality was, is like, this, this is a big guy, and he's young. He's almost as big as me. He's a lot younger than I am. He's filled with steroids. I, I don't have a steroid in my body. I'm probably in better shape than him. I'm going to stand there. I'm going to make him panic. I'm not going to sell. I'm going to make him panic <laughs> in, in the thing, and he's going to have an adrenaline dump, and he's going to be tired. And at that point, he's going to do whatever. He's going to be so tired, he's going to do whatever needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And Instead, Luger climbed out of the cage. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I mean, people just, it's like, that was actually something. And in the dressing room, afterwards, after Luger, you know, Luger climbs out, leaves, goes to the Carolinas, right? Mm-hmm. And Matsuda goes to, like, all these guys that are in the locker room, and it goes, because Matsuda considered, even though he trained Luger, he considered Luger a football player. And then Brody actually was a football player, too. And he just goes, and he's just in there in that dressing room going, like, 
that's what happens to you football players when you think you can mess with the wrestlers. <laughs> so but let me get this straight, though. By climbing over the cage, he didn't win the match. Yeah, because they didn't have climb-out rules. It was gotcha. in the middle, so I guess the match was a no con- I mean, we called it a no contest, you know, because... Or, or maybe a forfeit win for Brody. It's hard to say, like, what it was. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, Luger, you know, that, that's, what the, that's what the situation was. And, and, and Matsuda was happy because essentially what happened was Luger ran away from Brody. So now Brody's more over because Luger had been there top yeah. for a long time. So essentially he got, Brody got over, which was the plan all along. It, now, <laughs> he wasn't told to do it that way, but it was the end. That's why Matsuda was so happy when it was over, because it was what he wanted to begin with. And then for years it was just like unprofessional bruiser Brody shot in Lex Luger for no reason and this and that. And um, yeah, it, it, that's just like a really funny story. There's a famous story in the 1971 uh, Russia-Canada Summit where Bobby Clark slashed one of the Russian guys and broke his leg. And uh, he always, for years, was like, you know, Clark is a dirty player. But what you don't know is that the coach told Bobby Clark, take that guy out. So mm-hmm. Bobby was just doing what his coach told him to do by any means necessary. And it's the same same thing here with, with Brody and Luger. Yeah. Because when you watch it, like, I, I can't remember the specifics, but like, you know, Luger punches Brody, just stands there, hits the ropes for a tackle, and Brody just kind of looks at him. And then Luger goes like, I ain't putting up with this shit and just crawls out the cage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Um, it's before, as we build up to, to the Puerto Rico thing and obviously the whole story there, I noticed something interesting um, that at one point Brody was the booker in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that. And obviously uh, Fritz, Fritz must have thought that he was a fairly smart guy to put him in charge of the book. Well, Brody was really smart. I mean, his, in Japan, his nickname was the Intelligent Monster because oh. all the, all, you know, he was always reading books. Um, all the sports writers, he was really nice to all the sports writers. You know, even though he was like a, a crazed wild man when he was in the ring, you know, he, he, he understood. You know how when you go to Japan, there's a way to talk English slowly. Yeah. And Broken like English. When you go to Japan and you come back, it takes you a week to get out of that. Yeah. Um, but, but there's a way to talk English to Japanese where, um, you know, they can, the ones that know English somewhat well can get it, but you can't be talking the same as you do in the United States. And he was... Um, he was really good at that, but yeah, he was you know he was a sports writer you know hmm. at one point. Didn't know when, that when, when football ended, he was sports writing and then he was doing like semi pro or like I guess it would be minor league football and sports writing. Those were like his two jobs before he got you know he met Ivan Putsky and Ivan Putsky talked him into becoming a wrestler. Hmm. But um, yeah, yeah, so so yeah, he was a uh, Booker in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. So as far as that, I mean, him and Fritz always got along, and you know the the Von Erich kids. I mean, he watched them grow up and everything like that because. The thing that ended his booking run was um, when Mike committed suicide, and you know he was just so broken up because you know he had a son at that point, and you know David had already died too, and it really was—I just remember that being real tough on him, and I think he had to get out. But I remember the booking ended right around, right, right shortly after. But you know he booked; it was you know the territory was down, everyone respected him. My favorite stuff, I guess, my most memorable thing about when he booked is they had a crew of babyface wrestlers at the time that were like it was Bruiser Brody who's this big ugly brawler right mm-hmm. and then the other babyfaces are all pretty boy young good looking guys Lance Von Erich Kevin Von Erich Kerry Von Erich uh, Ultimate Warrior was there Dingle Warrior and um, I, I forget, they may have been the Simpsons but but, but that everyone else was like the real good looking or the real great body and you know they, they had a huge a lot of women fans at the time but anyway a lot of the baby faces were like horrible on interviews, like, like Warrior and, and Lance Von Erich especially. They were terrible on interviews. <laughs> so Brody, you know how you do the locker room interviews, and you know the guys come in and then they leave. So Brody would come in, do his interview for whoever he's wrestling, and instead of leaving, like he would do, and then here comes Lance, here comes um, Dingo Warrior. Brody would stand there like in the background, and Dingo Warrior would do this interview, and then he would leave, and then Brody goes. What Dingo's trying to say is, and then he would cut this promo for him. What Lance is trying to say is, and he would cut I just remember that being so funny. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. 
So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, let's get to the kind of the whole, the biggest story of his life, unfortunately, which of course is his untimely death, as you mentioned, the shower of, of, of Puerto Rico. Um, you, you touched on it before, how popular he was uh, in Puerto Rico and how much business he was doing. Um, let's talk about the, you know, kind of the whole circumstances of, and the night of his, of his death. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, it's 30 years later, and there's a lot of things that have been said, and I don't know what is and isn't true. I mean, I was, again, I, I was looking over my notes and really thinking back, because, you know, after it happened, you know, several people in Puerto Rico were, were you know, talking to me all week. Um, you know, Victor Quinones, who was, Victor Quinones was Brody's best friend in Puerto Rico. And, you know, he was calling me just because there was, there was a panic, and they were, worried, they were worried about their business. All the Americans left, and he's just going like, this isn't like a race riot. You know, I remember him saying, this isn't, it isn't Americans versus Puerto Ricans, it isn't a race riot. You know, there's a murder of, you know, like their booker, who was one of their top baby faces, Jose Gonzalez, and Brody, who was the biggest foreign baby face, was Brody had turned by then. So it's, it's, you know, it's basically your pecking order. It's Carlos, obviously, who's the owner. He's number one. And then Jose and Brody were kind of like, you know, battling for number two, not against each other, but they were like the number one A and one, you know, whatever, one, you know, the, the two other top baby faces. And one just killed the other. So in Puerto Rico, it's like, you know, it's the, one baby face knifed another baby face. And in that era, in, in that island, I think that the believability factor was really high because they protected their business a lot. So you had that aspect. Oh, my God, Jose killed a guy we like. But Jose is Puerto Rican and Brody is a wild man. You know, I mean, so it was, it's kind of like that weird thing. But, you know, as far as, like, why it happened, I know that, like, there's a lot of stories about, you know, that, that Brody loaned them money, but they, he wouldn't have done that, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And his friends and his wife have discounted that story completely. And the idea that he loaned them money and he came back and was just like, I want my money now. Um, and they said, like, it was a fight over money. And the thing is, is when his deal was there was, is he would work and then they would mail a check like two weeks later or a week, you know, he'd get it two weeks later. So he'd probably mail it like a week later. So they didn't do the cash thing. So he wouldn't have fought. It wouldn't have been a fight over cash at that moment. And there was no time for a fight. I mean, Jose comes to the dressing room and he brings him in and it's immediate from, from the timeline of, of what happened. He gets stabbed. There was no, there was no yelling or screaming. Tony Atlas, who, who described it in like chilling detail in that um, High Spots DVD, it's like, like I, I could never do it justice, but he, he goes in there and it's like the most traumatic thing of his entire life. Um, talking about what happened. And, you know, Brody and Tony were good friends as well, so you're watching, you know, they, he hears a scream, he runs in there. I think he may have seen it. And, you know, Brody's bleeding from the chest, and he's lying there on the ground, and Tony had to take him, you know, to the hospital. And um, it took 40 minutes. Actually, I think it was really 25 minutes, but it got exaggerated in time to 40 minutes before the, the ambulance came and, and all that that night. But, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was stabbed, he probably would have lived, but he had taken a bunch of aspirin, so his blood was, th- was thin, so they couldn't get the blood to clot, you know, t- when they were treating him. And Let me and, just explain, um, explain that to, to people. Back in the day when you would uh, gig or, you know, get color, get blood, you would take aspirin to thin your blood so that you would bleed more. Right, right. right. And, and, and obviously, in that, you know, Brody was a, a regular bleeder, and I'm sure that in that match, it was, he was supposed to wrestle Danny Spivey that night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's in a Brody match, he, it, this, was a, this was a stadium show. I mean, this wasn't some small show. This was an outdoor stadium show in uh, Bayamon. And, yeah, I'm sure it was going to be a bloodbath. So, yeah, that's, that's what happened. So let's kind of go into this a little bit deeper, though. So we're saying that it's not because you mentioned that the, the, the Gonzalez just took him right in the shower and, and stabbed him. So obviously it was premeditated. I think so. So, Had to be. but but from what? From doing a job? Like, let's go through a little bit more of those details that you just mentioned. You know, there's there's so many things. Um, maybe he was fed up because Brody. You know, when he was the booker, and when Brody went there, Brody pretty much was going to do his own programs and like you know. So so it's kind of like there is that power thing, and um, so there may have been that. I mean, there's all kinds of speculations as far as there was a match. A, it was a couple months earlier. And it was their tag team champions who I think it was 
it was a Japanese team, and I think it was Kendo Nagasaki and Mr. Pogo. It was definitely, and I'm 99% sure of that, and I'm 100% sure Kendo Nagasaki was one of them. And they wrestled Brody and, and a partner, and Brody saw, like, um, the Japanese magazine photographers there, and Nagasaki and Pogo at the time were working for New Japan, and they were, you know, middle guys in New Japan. He, at this point, is back with All Japan, and he's top guy in All Japan. So his mentality is, is you know, they were going to do DQ finish, and they did, you know, so they didn't win the titles. But it's like, I can't have a photo of me selling for these guys all over Japan because it makes New Japan look good and we're in a war. So he didn't sell for them at all. Mm. And they were the tag team champions at the time. So um, I know that he did get in an argument with Carlos after that match. So, you know, that's the one thing as far as, you know, a thing in the ring where, where there was a dispute. I mean, that definitely happened. But... He, when he went on that trip, because I, I went through my notes on, you know, like what his moods were and things like that, you know, and, and with his wife, you know, his, what his wife thought and things like that. And it's like, you know, Brody was a very, I don't want to say paranoid, but he was street smart. And like if something was going to happen, he, he you know, I, I mean, I remember just like when he would go to Japan and, and, and you know, there would be a certain match where he was a little bit worried about the match. So he would, whether he would train harder in, in, in his boxing or or whatever, you know, kind of, or get a little leaner, you know. I mean, he, he was, you know, he was always worried about somebody doing something because he was in that top position. You could really make a rep off of him in Japan by being unprofessional, you know, as well. But when he went to Puerto Rico, he had none of that. I mean, he wasn't worried. Everything was fine. The night before Gonzalez killed him, him and Gonzalez rode to the town together with, I think, I think Victor Quinones was the third guy, but him and, I remember him and Gonzalez, went to the town together the Friday night, and he was killed on the Saturday night. And, and there was no, I, 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 you know, again, there were other people in the car, and nobody ever said that, that they fought or anything. You know, it was just they were in a car ride together. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean it's hardly a reason to, to murder somebody because he roughed up your tag team champions or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's theories of people who think that they never meant to kill him and it got out of control. Like maybe when he... He meant to stab him, but he didn't mean to stab him in a place that would kill him. But, you know, again, who knows? The only one who knows is Jose, and, and you know, Jose is, it's, you know, anyone who's ever tried to do a story on this has gotten, um, you know, I know a lot of reporters, you know, decades later, and I mean, even, even in recent years, there was like one reporter who went to me and was just like, I'm going to go to, I want to go to Puerto Rico, I want to investigate this story firsthand, go everywhere, and... You know, they quickly got word that, like, this would not be a smart thing for you to do. And I know that another um, group, um, you know, like, tried to get the, the trial transcripts. And this is, and I just found this out, like, two weeks ago. Because they called up, the, you know, whoever has the, the transcripts of all the, the court cases. And they go, okay, um, call us back in a couple of hours. We'll, you know, we're gonna, we'll look for them. And they came back, and they called back. And, goes, and then they called back a second time a couple hours later, and they go, we don't have them. They're not here, and never call us again. So, wow. this is, and this is like, like I said, this conversation I was told two weeks ago, and the the timing of this was probably within the the last, you know, couple months. It maybe even, you know, last couple weeks for all I know. And did you have you ever tried to do any type of investigating on it? Past what happened then. I mean, everything was always a, a stalemate. And you know, I mean, over the years, I talked to Quinones about it many, many, many times over the years. And, you know, he's got, he had his theories and everything like that. But, you know, he, he would readily admit that, yes, it was a murder. You know, I mean, he, that, that was not anything that we ever debated. It was like, yes, it was a murder. Yes, it's basically what, you know, you think it is. But, you know, as far as, like, you know, why it happened, um, you know, he never, gave me any, he never gave me any theories other than it was just so weird because he knew it, they knew it. And Jose was, you know, after the trial, Jose was back wrestling. And Jose was working in the office even before the trial. You know, but he, he, they wouldn't let him wrestle. But they were on TV every week, you know, trying to babyface him before the trial while he's not wrestling. And then he comes back, and he's a babyface. And, you know, in the years to come, because he, he continued wrestling until just a couple of years ago, well into his late 60s, as a babyface, as a superstar. And there was a whole generation of fans who knew, you know, Invader number one, and didn't even know the Brody story to the point when um, when he did one of his retirements, they were going to do a big um, you know Invader Day 
in Puerto Rico, and none of the politicians knew any better. And then it, it came out, you know, wait a minute, this guy did this, and then they had to rescind it. So how did he get away with it? So I was reading my own writing. I wrote, you know, this would have been right before the trial, and it's, it scared me when I read it because it was like I'm writing about, okay, the trial's coming up. He's going to get away. With, I mean, I'm writing it like matter of fact. He's going to get away with it. Um, <laughs> and he did, essentially. Um, there's going to be problems with the witnesses. And there were, you know, like Dutch Mantel, well, well, who, who did not see the murder, but he was in that. Dutch Mantel was a baby face at the time. He would have been in that dressing room. But he was outside the dressing room at the time it happened. He was just trying to, like, gauge the house, basically. Right. Comes back in, there's a big panic. So he did not see it, but he... Essentially, he'll tell you he kind of knows what happened. But um, he got a subpoena to testify in the trial, you know, and it came to him a couple of days after he had heard the verdict that Jose was acquitted. And Tony Atlas, you know, was some, who did see it. I don't remember if he was scared to go back or he got his thing after the trial was over as well. But a lot of the guys, you know, and, and a lot of the guys were scared. There were wrestlers who did go to the authorities, but most of them didn't because they were scared. All the Americans went to the next town, and, you know, the next day, Jose was going to wrestle on the show the next day. Jose wrestled that night, which mm. is like the scariest thing. So After he killed Brody? He wrestled because he was later in the card, yeah. Oh Jose goodness. wrestled that night, and the heels were told there was something in the dressing room, but they were kind of like giving the idea that maybe a fan stabbed Brody. Brody's not going to be working. Brody's match is off. But Jose wrestled on that card, you know, because this happened before. This, this happened, uh, what, about 7, 7.15. I think it was 7.15. The card probably started like 8, 8.30. Jose was probably second, third from the top. Um, Brody was third from the top, so Jose was probably second from the top on that show. And, wow. yeah, he wrestled his match. He went to the town the next day. Um, some of them got, most of the guys by this point knew what was happening, and the guys just left, you know, left the island. Everyone flew home because they just wanted, that was just, you know, people were just scared. Well, I mean, I don't blame them. You're going to go over there and get murdered with no consequence. Yeah. You know, was there any guys that, that had been working there regularly that just didn't go back, refused to go back because of it? The Funks didn't go for years and years and years. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if Terry ever went back. Dory went back. I remember Dory told me the morning of the thing, and it was just kind of like, you know, and this was like his, his, one of his main territories. And he just goes, yeah, my career in Puerto Rico's over. I can't ever go back. And he did go back, but it was... You know, I mean, I, I would think it was at least a decade later. A lot of the guys, like the Road Warriors and Ric Flair, they never went back. Um, really? Dusty, they never went back? I, I, don't think Dusty ever, I don't think Dusty ever really went there because he might have been, maybe Carlos didn't want him because it would have been too much competition or, you know, or Dusty had other things. But, yeah, like, like a lot of the, the big stars that used to go there, you know, like the Road Warriors were, were friends with Brody and, and, Flair, and Flair was too. But, yeah, they never went back. So when Brody was stabbed, and, and I might be getting my stories confused, this is not a Ricky Dozan uh, situation where somebody had peed on the knife, which infected. No, no, not as far, no. Okay, so why did it take so long for, for the hospital, or for the ambulance to get there, and take so long for him to get to the hospital, and all that sort of stuff? I don't, I don't know. Um, that's, that's I, I don't, you know, I don't exactly remember the details of that, but it was, it was a long time, and I'm sure, like, for Tony Atlas sitting there, you know, like, it probably seemed forever because he's sitting there and he's clutching this photo of his son, who I think was six years old at the time. Wow! And As he was he's, dying, he's Brody did. And he's wow. he knows he may die. He's still he's completely conscious, and he's just you know um, you know just like you know tell my wife I love her, tell my son I love him, you know, and and you know just you know and Tony like had to carry him, you know, because because they they couldn't get him up, and you know Tony was Mister Super Strong guy. I remember like. I think Tony told the story of, like, look, I can curl 300 pounds, which, by the way, sounds completely ridiculous, except I pro he probably could. Yeah. have you seen his I arms? Of, you know, you and yeah. I lifting weights, can you imagine curling 300 pounds, right? Yeah. But he goes, I can curl 300 pounds, I can definitely lift you, and he did. And Brody was, what, 6'8", 315? No, no I, I would say at that point he's 6'5", he's I would say 270 to 280. All right, he's a big man. He had dropped, he had dropped weight by then. Yeah. Yeah, probably 280-ish. Okay. And, um... Yeah, but as far as like why it took so long, I mean, that I mean, it, it seemed like forever, and he's you know basically on the floor bleeding in front of all these people, and um, you know before the ambulance comes. Yeah, I don't know if there was a traffic thing or there was a mix-up or who, who, I don't who knows.
You know, I mean, or, or, or was there, it? There was, there was, there was definitely thought when, like, the police first heard it that it was a wrestling angle. So yeah. kind of like, do you know what I mean? Like, right. like, oh, you know, a wrestler stabbed another wrestler, and especially in Puerto Rico where they did hardcore angles. You know, it's like, so the first, so that may, there may have been delay of people going like, you know, don't involve us in, in your stuff until, you know, they find, someone finally got through to them, like, this isn't the wrestling angle. Or, or you know, then you start thinking, was it an island-wide conspiracy? You know what I mean? Like, it's just so- I don't think that it could have been that much, but I mean, as far as like the trial and what happened at the trial, were, were strings pulled? I, I'm, I'm like absolutely, completely convinced they were. I mean, the idea that like the subpoenas come after the trial, um, I, you know, I don't think that that's like a problem with the U.S. mail system just happened to screw up that subpoena or something. And just everything, I just, again, when I was reading back I, of, of my own coverage that I wrote before the trial, and it's scary because I, you know, I haven't really thought about this so much in decades, really. Just reading back, going like, "Well, we know he's going to get off of it," and I'm and explaining why, and it's just like, "Oh my God!" You know, it's just like, and it was so matter of fact, like, "Well, this is just how this is just how it's going to be down there." You know what I mean? That this top babyface is not going to be, you know, he's not going to serve any time for murdering this guy because the guy's a foreigner and he's politically connected. Because you know that promotion at the time was was huge. It was and and. And they were, you know, they were the hometown guys, and they were connected, and and you know, that's just kind of what the world was then. It's really scary. To it's think. very scary. It's incredible to think about it, man. It's 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 you know, getting into like an OJ territory or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and I don't blame those guys for not going back. And I'm sure there's a lot of guys that had to continue going back to make a living that probably were scared to death on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, some of the guys who went back, you know, there was there was a thing. Where, where guys that went back were shunned, you know, like if they w- went back and then um, would, would work in other territory, because the territories were just dying at the time, and they got a lot of resentment. It was like, look, we had nowhere else to go to feed our family. So it was kind of like, you know, that thing. I mean, I don't think anyone, you know, was, was happy to go back. But in that era, you know, it was the one that I remember... Um, Eddie Gilbert told me the story because Eddie Gilbert went back and he, when he was a kid, he, he idolized Brody when he was starting out in his career. I think he even teamed with Brody a couple times, but he, he had great reverence for Brody and he went to Puerto Rico. And I think that like he went, um, I think he was the one who told me that Jose's running the dressing room again. You know, this is, this probably would have been like, the death was July of 88, so this is probably 89 at some point, and probably early. And he's just going like, I went there, and goes like, you know, because we knew Jose was working in the office, but we didn't know he was the booker. And he's just going like, I went there, Jose's in the dressing room, and, and he just goes, Jose comes to me, and goes, Eddie, I want to talk to you in private. Oh, and he wow. just goes like, I got so scared. Of course, absolutely yeah. not. And it was like, but it was almost like it's surreal because everyone knew that story, and, um, you know, it was like, it was so weird and comfortable that they made that guy Booker again. Um, you know, and, and yeah, could you imagine? I mean, like, that could never happen now. Never. Well, just the reaction of the fans and just how everyone just, you know, shoved it under the carpet. That must have been insane for his wife and now for his son to know that no one really knows what happened, that there was no closure or anybody held accountable for it. Yeah, I know that there was talk. John Studd, who was another friend of Brody, I think at one point, like, he tried to pull strings. I, he had, like, connections in Washington, D.C., and he tried to pull strings to find something out. And there was talk of, like, filing a wrongful death lawsuit against the, the, the promotion. But it was just one of those things where but the trial's going to be back there. So, you know, you're probably spending a lot of money on lawyer fees. and pro- You know, would, would the company in some form be held responsible? In theory, yes. But in reality, what's going to, you know, you know, you don't trust the court system there after the first thing. So they never really did anything on that. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, his son, you know, like, I mean, like, look, he was six years old when this, when this right. went down. So, yeah. Did it affect uh, Puerto Rico's business going For a while forward? There, yeah. Um, they never got back to where right. they were. That's what I thought. Ever. Um, there was one period decades later when, um, you know, I, I guess this would have been around. Um, when WWF was cooperating with WWC and The Rock went down there, and the IWA was the IWA and WWC were in a big promotional war, and you know it had been decades, not decades, but it had been a, a dozen years, and they did have like a pretty hot period for a couple of years, but 
like if you say like to the peak of what it was in the 80s, no, it never, it, it turned a, a lot of people were turned off. Business did go down. They, hurt, they, were, they, they were hurt with their business. I mean, Puerto Rico was like a hotbed where, you know, you could make real good money working three nights over the weekend. If you were a big star, you were Friday, Saturday, Sunday, go home, you know, like, like what Brody would do. And, and a lot of the top stars went there, stadium shows and things like that. Yet it never got back to, to that level. Just as we wind down here, it's amazing to me, you know, it's been 30 years and he never was on the national stage, but Brody, like, if you're in the business or a fan, like, everyone knows the name Bruiser Brody, A, because it's such a cool name, and B, I think it's one of those things, like, if you're a music fan, like Randy Rhodes or Stevie Ray Vaughan, somebody that was taken so early that makes their legend just grow in retrospect. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because it's like now, this year, I've probably heard more about it being that it's the 30th anniversary of it, then in years and years and years. And, and now, it, because it's so far, it's almost like, like when it was going on, it was like one of those numbing things, but when you look back on it, it's just like, to me, it, it, there's a lot of similarities with the Benoit thing in the sense that, you know, you probably, because you were in this thing, you know, more than me, because you were really good friends with them, but, you know, I was doing coverage of it and everything. That whole period when it was going on was like this big nightmarish blur. Right. But then when you and I talked about it, it's, it's almost like this, like, really happened. It's almost like yeah. it was such a, 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 so far out of the box that you, you couldn't even come to grips with it when it happened. And, and then when you look back and you just go, how did this happen? You know, did, and you, for you even, you know, like I said, more yeah. than me, because it's like, this is this guy who, you know, I've known for years and years and years. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you process it? And like with Brody, I mean, it wasn't like he didn't do it himself, but it's like this guy who was like, again, like on an international basis, I mean, he, you know, you know I mean, it's Hulk Hogan, Bruiser Brody, um, you know, Andre the Giant, Ric Flair, mm-hmm. Dusty, you know, I mean, these were the giants of the industry on a worldwide basis. Yeah. And, you know, one day you wake up and, and it's like Brody's dead. And it's like total numb situation. And now looking back, it's like this really happened. And... um you know, the finality of it and just the whole thing. It's funny. There was a, a, a video game that I used to play in the 80s. It was called Exciting Hour, and it came from Japan. And there was five guys that you had to beat to be the champion, and they were, like, just random guys. There was, like, one called Coco Savage. There was one called the Piranha Mask Guy. But the champion that was super hard to beat, his name was Blues Bloody. And it took me years later. It was a Japanese video game, like I said, and he looked like Brody, and he sounded like Brody. And Blues Bloody is basically the Japanese pronunciation, you know, Blues Bloody, Blues yeah, Bloody, yeah. Blues Bloody. Um, last question, is there a, a, a standout Bruiser Brody match that you can think of? You know, um, Flair and St. Louis, and Oak, some of the Inoki matches, Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen against the Funks. Yeah. Those would be the ones that would come to mind. I mean, the St. Louis match, him and, him and Flair set what was the all-time record gate in St. Louis. You know, and that was like... Um, you know, one of the major cities in wrestling. And, and there's actually a funny story about that, that um, they used to have a certain percentage where they would pay. And essentially, based on that percentage, Flair and Brody should have made $7,200 for that match. Right. And Bob Geigel, who was the guy in charge at the time, and Sam Mushnick was out, said nobody deserves to make more than $6,000 for a wrestling match. That's ridiculous. So he paid him like 5900 and change for the match. And which was a fantastic payoff then. It was like bigger than you would get, you know, unless you were main eventing the Garden, that would have been as big a payoff as you would get anywhere in, in, in wrestling in North America. But he was told what happened, and then, um, you know, like a couple months later, he was supposed to wrestle Kamala in Des Moines, Iowa, for, for Bob Geigel. And this was his revenge, you know. He was just like, he didn't come. And I just remember Terry Funk going, please go, please go. And it's like, he cheated me at $1,300. He's got a big show. I waited for him to have a big show. And, you know. Wow. You know. And, and that's, see, that, that's why, like, a lot of promoters hated him. And, and again, he was stubborn. And, and there's two sides to every story. But he, he had a great mistrust for promoters, which made it very difficult for him to deal with. Except Baba, he, you know, Baba and Fritz, he really didn't have that problem with. And Inoki had it with constantly. That's why, you know, he had, he had like the sweetheart deals in the world with Inoki. And, you know, he blew both of them up because he just, he didn't trust them. And, you know, him and Inoki just like, they had a thing where, you know, they, they did a bunch of matches and they were always draws, no contest, those finishes because nobody would, would lose. 
So then there was this idea of two out of three fall match, okay? We'll do a two out of three fall match, and we'll do a draw, but at least he pins you once and you pin him once. So Inoki finally pins him, but he'll, you, know, you pin him back, so it's all even. Let's do that. And so, so Brody and Inoki, this match never happened. The reason it never happened is because both Brody and Inoki would both refuse to be the one to lose the first fall because Brody felt, I lose the first fall, he's going to run, he's going to stall, and it's going to be Inoki 1-0, and I will have lost. I don't trust him. And Inoki probably was the exact same way. It's like, okay, I'll let him win the first fall, then he's going to fuck with me the rest of the match, and I'm going to lose. And that's, like, that was the level of the weirdness of of um, the Inoki Brody feud and just the, the weirdness of the whole business back in those days, man. Yeah. So, Dave, thank you so much, man. This has been a lot of fun as always, and uh, the legend of Bruiser Brody lives on. Thank you very much. Cheers, man. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thanks to Dave Meltzer for coming back and talking about Bruiser Brody. And if you don't already subscribe to the Wrestling Observer newsletter, you should. You get access to all the new and archived newsletters, uh, daily radio shows, so much stuff that Dave does covering the entire wrestling and MMA world. Check it out at WrestlingObserver.com. And if you want a first-hand account of all the great matches and activities happening aboard Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, setting sail October 27th from Miami to the Bahamas, then you need to book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. And remember, once you book your cabin, everything is included in the price, all-inclusive. Live podcasts, concerts, comedy shows, meet and greets, autograph signings, all the wrestling matches in the Sea of Honor tournament, Alpha Club versus Bullet Club, You'll get to see everything, even includes your food. Only things you got to pay for are alcohol and gambling. But here's what we know for sure. Uh, the main event, one of the match of the century, Alpha Club versus the Bullet Club. It's the Bucks of Jericho, or is it Y2 Jackson, versus Kenny Omega, Marty Skrull, and Cody. The big rematch of Alpha versus Omega from January 4th at the Tokyo Dome. Alpha Club versus Bullet Club. Only on the cruise. It's not going to be streamed. If you want to see the match, you got to be there. Also, Impact versus Ring of Honor. Marty Skrull versus Sammy Callahan with more matches to come. Then you got the Sea of Honor tournament. Uh, bracket A, Jay Lethal versus BJ Whitmer. Chris Daniels versus Delirious. Marty Skrull versus Rhett Titus. Marty's going to be busy. Silas Young versus Flip Gordon. And then bracket B, Mark Briscoe versus Will Ferrara. Adam Page versus Frankie Kazarian. Cheeseburger versus Beer City Bruiser, who's going to be an upcoming guest here on Talk is Jericho. And then Jay Briscoe versus Kenny King. Then we also got a live Talk is Jericho with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Live Talk is Jericho remembering Eddie Guerrero with Conan and Rey Mysterio. Live Talk is Jericho with Jim Ross and Jerry Law, the greatest announced team in WWE history. And another live Talk is Jericho with the entire Bullet Club, plus Mick Foley doing his 20 Years of Hell stand-up show I'll be doing one of my own uh, one-man Wars of Jericho live shows. Uh, Keeping it 100 versus Killing the Town. Conan Disco Inferno, Shane Helms versus uh, Paul Lazenby, Cyrus, and another member. Beyond the Darkness, Scaring the Pants Off You. Colt Cabana and Marty DeRosa doing the Unprofessional Wrestling Podcast. Live comedy. Brad Williams, Craig Gass, Ron Funches, the Impractical Jokers will be there. Live music, Corey Taylor, Slipknot and Stone Sour. Fozzie will be playing. Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons. King. The Stir, the Dave Spivak Project, the Cherry Bombs, the Darlings of Rock and Roll will be there. Shoot to Thrill, the world's best female ACDC cover band. Blizzard of Ozzy, the world's best Ozzy Osbourne cover band. We got the special cruise director, SoCal Val, special guest host, Noel Foley. Lots of stuff going on, so book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Come join the fun. Don't miss out on this. Come make history on the first ever rock and wrestling rager at sea with the first and only Alpha Club versus Bullet Club, the main event of the century. Uh, go ChrisJerichoCruise.com to get your cabin now. Uh, and stick with us, because Friday we return to the rock and roll with guitarist extraordinaire John Five comes alive. He's talking all things Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie. He's touring with both right now. Uh, it's a great uh, conversation. He's a huge Kiss, Kiss fan as well. Go to Instagram, Knights and Satan Service, to see his entire Kiss collection. It'll blow your mind. So we will see you on Friday. In the meantime and in between time, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah, boy! Yeah.